On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. everybody and welcome to audio judo i'm matthew and i'm kyle welcome to your podcast of music discovery we are proud members of the pantheon podcast network the premier source for music podcasts the offering list just continues to grow with our partners so please check that out at pantheonpodcast.com so if this is the first time you're joining us welcome let me just let you know that if you like what you hear we also have additional bonus content on our patreon page hmm. for the low low price five dollars a month kyle would you like to tell them how to do that i sure will so if you go to patreon.com forward slash audio judo you can sign up that five dollar tier is called the front row seats tier with it you'll get two-day early access to all of our episodes a shout out on future episodes as a loyal producer some bonus mini episodes we call judo chops uh, and some occasional bonus content such as unedited interviews behind the scenes videos and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes uh, mostly due to flatulence we also have a higher tier called the Backstage Pass. It is $20 a month, so it's a little bit of a step up, but you do get everything from that original tier, plus a very special personalized gift and the chance to co-host an audio judo episode on the album of your choice. That benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once. However, we will do any album you pick. So That's uh, true. You pick something that's just absolute hot garbage, we will talk about we'll it. We'll talk about it. We're pretty much adding content to that weekly mm -hmm. or bi-weekly. Bi-weekly, basically. Uh, and this year we'll probably ramp some of that up. Maybe some video content as well, mm. maybe. And I'd like to welcome uh, three new patrons, Aaron, Rory, and Mike. Welcome. Welcome uh, to the Audio Judo family. We're glad that you're joining us. Yeah, we appreciate your support. It helps us make this podcast. So about six weeks ago, I was going over our show recording schedule. And I noticed a blank on the schedule for oh. today, sort of. Mm -hmm. uh, in the audio judo vernacular, we have placeholders on the schedule that say, Kyle's choice, to let Kyle know that he has to pick something so I could start doing some research. And this is what I saw. I jumped to the audio text conversation and let him know he needed to choose. He quickly responded. And when I read what he wrote, my face slowly dropped into my hands. <laughs> and I quietly said, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle has chosen for you the most poured over, mm -hmm. researched, catalog, yes. and listened to records of the last 30 years. Absolutely. What are we talking about? We're talking about Nevermind by Nirvana. Because Kyle hates me. I hate you. And I was like, you know what would be great? He said it's because they just released the 30th anniversary that edition is one of the, the reasons. But I'm pretty sure it's mostly because he hates me. Well, I mean, I figured this album would be a fantastic fit for us because you would have been right around high school or just graduated from high school, right? 19. When this came out. Yeah. 19 years old when this album came out. And so you were right at that that peak oh, yeah. target market for this album 
you were, you know, I, I, I don't know how into grunge you were. Oh, we're going to talk about it. So cool. But, and for me, it was right at that time. I was like nine years old when this came out and it was right at this point where not to rub that in, uh, I was right at that point though, where I was starting to listen to adult music. You know what I mean? I was starting to listen to real music. It wasn't kid stuff anymore. It wasn't whatever my parents listened to. It was stuff that I actually enjoyed. And this was such a huge thing. The grunge movement alone was the music of the 90s, in my opinion. Yeah. And it became this sort of a a big exploding point for, in my generation, if you didn't know this album, you were a loser. It would be hard not to. Yeah. So the groundbreaking record is one of the most beloved records by music listeners and also one of the most reviled records by hardcore punk fans who see it nothing more than a complete and total sellout yep. to different worlds. And that is exactly where this record lived and continues to live all these years later at the pivot point of worlds colliding. Uh, was it as good as everyone believed it to be? Perhaps. Was it as sellouty as punk fans would have you believe? Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Uh, and I guess that's what Kyle and I are going to aim to conquer a little bit today. The mystique, the legend, the good and the bad. Yeah. So let's talk about it. So obviously, if you don't know about Nirvana, what the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, what can we really say about Nirvana? They were the band that most people knew from the grunge movement. Nirvana. Nirvana. Uh, in the late 1980s, Nirvana was one of the major acts coming out of that Seattle grunge scene, along with bands like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Temple of the Dog, Mud Honey, sort of. Mud Honey, uh, uh, Mud And Honey. others. Yeah. The band in its most recognizable form was Kurt Cobain on lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Chris Novoselic uh, on bass, and Dave Grohl on drums. Uh, it all started when Kurt and Chris met while attending Aberdeen High School in Aberdeen, Washington, which is about an hour west of Seattle. Kurt wanted to form a band, but Chris was hesitant. Kurt gave him a demo tape of a project that he had been working on called Fecal Matter. A very punk of him. Right. Uh, it took him three years to listen to it. But when Chris finally did, uh, he was like, yeah, all right, let's form a band. So they did in 1985. Their first band was called The Sellouts. Pretty it was good a, foreshadowing right there. Yeah, you know. The Sellouts? Yeah, you know. Uh, it was a Creedence Clearwater Revival tribute band. I was not successful what? in finding any footage of this, <laughs> but I hope to God that it exists. Uh, it it I hope so, too. I would I, love to see Kurt Cobain rocking out to Born on a Bayou or Have You Ever Seen the Rain. I would pay yeah. great money. To hear it's, that. Somebody somewhere for sure has an old cassette with this on it, and they don't know it. it right, It's in somebody's uh, attic. It has to be. Like buried in a box. Like, what's this? The sellouts. Yeah. yeah. And so, that's gold. It's yeah. gold. So after that, they went through a whole bunch of iterations, which is sort of a Kurt Cobain theme, uh, and a bunch of different names, <laughs> and a bunch of different drummers during that period. Uh And honestly, regardless of what a lot of Nirvana fans and historians will tell you, none of that's really important. Are you talking about the other bands that they were in, like Pen Cap Chew? Yeah. uh, Skid Row and Ted Ed Fred? Yeah. Or because, uh, but they settled on Nirvana because it was nice and beautiful and not mean like the angry Samoans? Sure. (laughs) So uh, in 1988, a mutual friend introduced Kurt and Chris to Chad Channing. Uh, who started to jam with the band. Uh, he played his first show with them in May 1988. 
Uh, in December 1988, they began to record the album that would become Bleach with local producer Jack and Dino. Uh, Jason Everman uh, fronted the $606.17 required to cover the recording sessions. He was later credited on the second as the second guitarist on Bleach, although he didn't record any of the tracks. According to Novoselic, quote, they wanted to make him feel more at home with the band. Right. That's a nice thought. But you could have just labeled him as a producer and been done with it. Right. Although he may have been entitled to more money as a producer. Yeah. So who knows how that works. But still kind of a stupid move. But again, young bands that were, you know, punky garage band types. What the hell? They don't know what the hell they're doing. So uh, Bleach was released in June of 1989 and received heavy airplay on college stations across the U.S. Uh, Jason Everman was shortly after fired or quit, depending upon who you ask. In April 1990, the band began working on their next album, but tensions arose when Kurt and Chris were unhappy with Chad's drumming, yeah. and Chad was unhappy that he wasn't involved with any of the songwriting. Bleach was huge, though. Bleach was a pretty big album. Bleach became, it was a hit on college radio, aka alternative radio. It sold 40,000 copies be- before Nevermind yeah. was ever released, and would end up selling almost 2 million copies because of Nevermind. Yeah. And it remains, to this oh. day, Sub Pop's biggest selling album. I definitely think it became a much bigger album because people, once they heard Nevermind, were like, wait a minute, this band has another album that's already out? We got to get a hold oh, of it. Oh, for sure. And I'm sure the fact that it was rare at that point, especially in the early 90s, added to its mystique and its prestige as like, we have to get copies of that. And, you know, they couldn't press them quick enough. The songs are fantastic, though. Like, uh, About a Boy and Negative Creep still get played on Lithium to this day. And it's set the table for the behemoth that would make them and destroy them. Oh, again, don't don't get me wrong. Bleach is a fantastic album, and I'm brushing over it very quickly. Oh, I know. But it it very much deserves its place uh, in the history of of rock and, and grunge and whatever you want to call it from the early 90s. So... Just just for a second, when you proposed this album, Kyle, mm-hmm. I sat down and wrote my initial thoughts about this record before I did any research. What do I remember mm-hmm. off the top of my head? Can I list the songs from memory? Do I still know the words? And I would say that I probably listened to this record 500 times in the span of three years, from like 1991 to 1994. I, I think that's a fair number. And since that period, I would say I've listened to it all the way through maybe five times. I would also say that's pretty fair. So I had some apprehension. I knew it, but how well did I know it? I was able to list the first song, first six songs from memory, like right away. Uh, And I started to play it. And I have to be honest with you. It was like slipping on a comfortable pair of shoes. It's a little worn out, but man, oh man, it fits so well. Yeah. It's like they're an extension of your feet, you know? I knew every word. I knew every rapid fire drum fill. It was like being transported back in time to 1991 and it was really surreal but let, get back to what you were talking about oh what, yeah uh, uh so where we were at was uh in april 1990 they began working on their next album after bleach had been released but there were some tensions uh kurt and christ were unhappy with chad's drumming and chad was unhappy with uh, not being involved with the songwriting so chad channing left the band in the summer of 1990 right before they were supposed to go on a big tour they had a guy named Dale Crover cover them on drums for that tour. In September 1990, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins uh, introduced Kurt and Chris to drummer Dave Grohl, whose band Scream had recently broken up. Uh, well, yeah, Dave Grohl had spent the last two or three years or so touring the world, yeah. not glamorously, mind you, in the punk band Scream. Mm-hmm. And they were in the midst of a tour of the West Coast 
when their bass player, Skeeter Thompson, decided that he didn't want to do it anymore, and he just freaking split, leaving the rest of the band in Los Angeles and completely broke. Yeah. Uh, Grohl bounced around from odd job to odd job until a friend of his from the Melvins contacted him about Nirvana looking for a drummer. So he drove up to Seattle, and within two minutes of the audition, yeah. Cobain and Novoselic knew they had their drummer. Novoselic actually said literally that, quote, we knew in two minutes that he was the right drummer. <laughs> Uh, at the same time, uh, the band was realizing they were going to be bigger, uh, and they dropped Sub Pop Records as their label and signed with DGC Records. There's a whole story behind that, and I'm going to kind of skip over it because there's a lot of details there that are fascinating, but basically unimportant. All the David, all the the David Geffen stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they then went to the Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California, to begin recording the album that would later become Nevermind. All told, the band has sold over 75 million records worldwide. During their short time as a mainstream band, Nirvana received an American Music Award, a Brit Award, and a Grammy Award for Best Alternative Music Album for the MTV Unplugged in New York album, which was their live album that would come out after this, uh, as well as seven MTV Music Video Awards and two NME Awards. They had five number one hit songs on the Billboard Alternative Songs charts, four number one albums on the Billboard 200 chart, and they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014. You want to do the vitals for this record alone? Do you have that? Yeah, I do. Well, you, uh, could do you, you can do that in a second. I would say I can skip to that if you want. It's, right. I think it's all the way at the end. So but, this, uh, this I, record was recorded on a budget of $65,000. Yes. It was absolutely ridiculous. They spent eight to 10 hours a day for 26 days recording this record. And they would craft history in it. This album was, re was released on September 24th, 1991 after Smells Like Teen Spirit had been out for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, the intention was to build off that single because they felt the next single, Come As You Are, was going to be the bigger song. Um, <laughs> that was a misread by Colossal Proportions, as we will talk about. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit became, <coughs> would become a juggernaut. Best case scenario from Geffen Records was that the record was, would sell somewhere between a quarter million and a half a million records in the next year, <laughs> hopefully matching the alternative darlings of the time, Sonic Youth. They released a, a statement saying they hoped that it would go gold after one right. year. <laughs> Sonic Sonic Youth's album uh, Goo had sold that previous amount the uh, the sold that amount the previous year. Yeah, but buoyed by the success of Smells Like Teen Spirit and the subsequent singles, uh, and riding the cultural wave that they helped put into motion at the beginning of 1992, this record was selling 300,000 copies a week. Yeah. <laughs> it had kicked Michael Jackson's Dangerous album out of the number one position, and they were at the top of everyone's list for every award, and also, destructively so, everyone's time as well. Yeah. You have all the vital statistics. Well, one other thing I think yeah. we need to go over before we get into this album, though, is uh, what is Nirvana, Matthew? Oh, it's a state, right? It is literally translated as the words blown out like a candle. Ooh. Concept in some Indian religions represents the ultimate state of enlightenment, the liberation from dukkha, which is the suffering or pain of life, and samsara, the beginningless cycle of repeated birth, mundane existence, and dying again. Oh, that's beautiful. All Indian religions assert it to be a state of perfect quietude, freedom, highest happiness, as well as the liberation from attachment and worldly suffering, and the ending of samsara. I like it. Right? Do you think this album would have been as popular if the band had called themselves the Angry mm. Samoans? I think it probably wouldn't have been as popular. In mm. Hindu philosophy, it's, too bad. Uh, it's the union or the realization of the identity of Atman, 
which is the universal essence of human beings, uh, with Brahman, the ultimate reality of the universe. In Jainism, Nirvana is also the, this is such a fun word, soteriological goal, or the goal of salvation, uh, representing the release of the soul from karmic bondage and samsara. In Buddhist context, Nirvana refers to realization of non-self and emptiness, marking the end of rebirth by stilling the fires that keep the process of rebirth going. To achieve Nirvana, one has to get rid of three psychological evils, Raga, which is greed and desire, Dwesha, which is anger, and Moha, which is delusion. Or, it's just a really cool sounding word. Or it's just a really cool sounding word. (laughs) I had to look it up. I had to look it up. No, it's like, good. I was like, it has such a, an important meaning to so many, many billions of people yeah, the world definitely. over, just beyond the band name. But uh, so tentatively, uh, uh, Nevermind was titled Sheep, which Cobain uh, created as an inside joke directed towards the people he expected to buy the album. They began writing uh, this writing and recording uh, in Butch Vig's Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on April second, nineteen ninety. And they had five days of recording. They got many of the basic tracks down and some lyrics, but they weren't polished or finished in any way at that point. Cut back to what I mentioned earlier about Nirvana leaving Sub Pop and signing with uh, DGC Records. They actually used these early recordings from Smart Studios as a demo tape to shop around for a new label. Because this interim time happened, the band was playing many of their new songs live in concerts before they released on any album, including playing Smells Like Teen Spirit at a gig they had taken to get gas money to make it from Seattle to Los Angeles to record this album, which I personally think is hilarious. It's like, hey, we're going to go record one of the biggest albums of the 1990s, but we don't have gas money to make it there. So we're going to play the song that would ultimately catapult that album into superstardom in order to make enough money to buy the gas to get us to Los Angeles. Can you possibly to make that know album. this though? You can't, but I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, the album was recorded, like you said, on a budget of $65,000, which is ridiculous. Vig and the band were unhappy with the initial album mix and they brought in producer Andy Wallace to assist. Uh, he had produced Slayer's 1990 uh, seasons in the abyss, which is a wonderful album. According to both Andy and Bush, the band loved the results of that collaboration. Uh, Nevermind was mastered in one afternoon on August 2nd at the Mastering Lab in Hollywood, California. Howie Weinberg started working alone when no one else arrived at the appointed time in the studio. By the time Nirvana and Andy Wallace and Gary Gersh arrived, Weinberg had mastered almost the entire album. I think that's so funny. That's they just, crazy. Eh, nobody was here, so I just started. And by the time they got here, it was done. There's a hidden track called Endless Nameless, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, it was intended to appear at the end of Something in the Way, uh, but it was accidentally a left off initial pressings of the album. I don't even count it as a track. I do, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, the only reason I do is because of a story I'll tell at the end of this Right, and podcast. I don't count it because I never waited through the six and a half minutes of shit to there get to go. it. Because it was on cassette. I think it was like 13 and a half minutes on the CD. I'm not going to wait. Screw it. I'll just go back (laughs) to the beginning. (laughs) So uh, as they were wrapping up recording, Kurt had started to grow tired of the name Sheep and suggested to Chris that the album be named Nevermind. Uh, Cobain liked it because it was a metaphor for his attitude on life and because it was grammatically incorrect. It's also in the lyrics to Smells Like Teen Spirit and was probably influenced by the Sex Pistols album Nevermind the Bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) He was ready to play. You were ready. You were so ready. 
was released on September 24th, 1991. Uh, American stores total received a shipment of 46,251 copies of this album. There were an additional 35,000 copies sent to the UK because it uh, Bleach had sold so well in the UK. And like you said earlier, they were estimating 500,000 copies sold by September a year later. Yeah, full year. It quickly sold out, and Geffen, the company that was pressing the CDs, had to actually put other albums on hold to fulfill the demand to press this album. And I cannot for the life of me remember what album we talked about that was delayed because of this. We talked about it in an episode because they were also being pressed by Geffen. Hmm. And we said, oh, this was delayed because they were pressing copies of Nevermind. I, cu- I couldn't find it in any I of don't my notes. Remember. So, but I remember talking about it. Debuted on the Billboard 200 at number 144. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit began to get huge amounts of radio play. And it was MTV was very hesitant to play this, the music video for it, during the day. The first time it premiered on MTV. Oh, was you're on, already talking about it? Yeah. Oh my god. You want me to you want me to roll back? We Did can. we skip to the track by track? No, 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 no. Oh. This is just uh, I'm just talking about the music video. Okay. Because it's part of the part of the build up for the album. Okay. We okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We fine. can jump back. No, 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 okay. you're good. <clears throat> so they uh, they they didn't really play the music video during the day and it actually premiered on their show 120 minutes which was uh, a late night alternative quote unquote rock show. It quickly became so popular that they began to play it during the daytime, and they actually had to play it multiple times during the day because they were getting so many requests for it. By November, Nevermind had entered the Billboard Top 40 at number 35. Like you said, it ousted Michael Jackson's Dangerous by January uh, 1992 uh, as the number one spot on the Billboard charts. It was certified gold and then platinum in November 1991, two months after release, and diamond in March of 1999. They went diamond in Canada, which means a million copies sold, and six times platinum in the UK, which is 1,800,000 copies sold. This album is single-handedly credited by many music historians as ending the run of hair metal bands and pushing grunge music into the mainstream, which I totally agree with. Other grunge bands, very popular, very important. Some came before, some came after this. I think this was the one that touched the mainstream and really pushed grunge music over. Mm-hmm. I would say that. You got anything else to say about the album, or you want to talk about the cover? A little no, bit? we can go to the cover. Everything else I have is in the track by track. Cool. So I think this might be one of the most famous covers of all time. Instantly recognizable. Instantly recognizable. It shows a naked baby boy named Spencer Eldon swimming underwater with a U.S. dollar bill on a fish hook in front of him just out of his reach. Right? And you can't have con- a popularity without a little controversy. No. Originally, Cobain wanted an underwater birth on the cover. And keep in mind that this is pre-internet, so to find something like that, you would have to go to the library and go through medical textbooks. Uh, Geffen art director Robert Fisher couldn't find any good pictures, uh, and the ones he did find were all too graphic for Geffen. Which, fair enough. So back to the drawing board. Uh, They came up with the idea of a baby underwater, and they wanted to make it look somewhat menacing, so they talked about adding the dollar bill on a fish hook. It says something about society. It's a smart concept, you know. So they needed a photographer. They found Kurt Weddle in a photography phone book that listed his tagline as, quote, specializing in underwater humans. Ooh. So that sounds right, right? So he would end up shooting the pictures at the Pasadena Aquatic Center with four or five sets of parents and their babies, took about 40 or 50 shots, found one that he liked, and ended up compositing the dollar bill into the shot. All of this pre-Photoshop, of course. 
and then he set to work on the title of the record. Fisher said this, I wanted the word never mind to look kind of underwater and wavy. So I had the type printed out and I held it on a Xerox machine. As it was scanning, I wiggled the image and it put <laughs> waves through it. Then I scanned it again and I wiggled it in another direction. That's how I had got the wavy type. Now you just go on a computer and use filters or whatever, and people say the wavy type is kind of cheesy. But back in the day, it was groundbreaking, damn it. It always kills me when you hear stories like that. And it's like, it's literally now a mouse click. But it's like, oh, yeah, we wiggle it around on a Xerox machine. Or, you know, we had to take 12 photos of it in different positions and composite them. Like, But it was actually a profession. Yeah. There was actually a shit ton of work going into that. Blows my mind. So Spencer Edel. He yeah. was the son of a friend of the photographer, Kirk Weddle. He would recreate the iconic photo for several of the re-releases of the album over the years, and he even wanted to do the photos naked, mm-hmm. but that was nixed by Geffen. The cover courted controversy back in the early days of its release for showing the baby's penis. Geffen wanted a cover without the penis in the shot, and Cobain said the only change he would allow was for a sticker to be put over the offending body part that read, if this offends you, then you are a pedophile. <laughs> Which I thought that was pretty amazing. Geffen relented and left the cover as is. But then fast forward to this past summer, summer of 2020, mm-hmm. 2021, and lo and behold, who shows up with a lawsuit in hand? Spencer Eldon. Spencer Edel, the baby in question, who had suggested doing a shoot naked. He claimed that the image was used without his consent or his legal guardian's. And it amounted to child pornography, and it resulted in lifelong damages. By not putting a sticker on it, Nirvana failed to protect him from child sexual exploitation. That lawsuit is still in litigation. Uh, But I know there was some talk by the remaining members of the band about altering the image for the 30th edition, but it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That being said, a lot of the legal teams involved have said that uh, they have used words like um, frivolous. I believe the lawsuit is the word, yeah. And, quote, really offensive to the true victims of child sexual abuse, end quote, which, uh, uh, fair enough. Uh, it is definitely a weird situation. Uh, uh, it's kind of BS. You, have you seen the back cover to this before? Yeah. Yeah, it features it's got a, a rubber monkey on yeah, it. Yeah, in front of a collage created by Cobain. Uh, the collage features photos of raw beef from a supermarket advertisement, images from Dante's Inferno, and pictures of diseased vaginas. From Cobain's collection of medical photos, because that is correct. Who doesn't have a nice collection of diseased vagina photos? I'm going to tell you, Kyle, that's pretty punk right there. Appar- that is pretty punk. That is pretty punk. Hey, welcome to my house. Do you guys want to come in? You want a drink or something? Would you like to look at my photograph book of diseased vaginas? You guys want to take check this out? Uh, let me get the slide projector. Hold on just a second. Let's get these up on the wall. Hey, as much as this record would be the gap bridger between punk and alternative in the mainstream. Mm. There are some serious punk elements to it, and that's part of it. <laughs> uh, Cobain did note, uh, quote, if you look real close, there's a picture of Kiss on the back standing on a slab of beef, end quote. Uh, also, the album's liner notes contain no complete lyrics to the songs. Instead, they contain random song lyrics and unused lyrical fragments that Cobain re- rearranged into a poem. That is pretty punk. Punk as fuck. So uh, before we get into this track, track by track, you want to take a quick break take and a quick we'll break. Uh, come back? Take a quick break. Don't Smother Nature is a one-stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. 
With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more Earth-friendly a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at DontSmotherNature.com. That's DontSmotherNature.com. The winter is nearly upon us, everyone, and it's about this time of the year that I start shifting from normal, chilled wine to something a little warmer. How do you feel about tea, Kyle? Uh, I'm not a big tea drinker, but I have had it before. Well, I'd like a lot of different teas, but if you think you know tea, then you haven't tried Tiesta tea. Ooh. It's premium loose leaf tea. It comes in five different varieties like Energizer and Slenderizer and Relaxer. Whole bunch of flavors like Maui mango, lavender, chamomile, and fruity paradise. Ooh. Uh, my favorite is nutty almond cream, Ooh. which is a perfect cup to just chill me out before I go to sleep. That sounds very much like a nice wintry blend. It's nice. Heather and I have uh, tried some, and she has a favorite or two. We have. We have. I actually really like that one as well. It It's reminiscent of a snickerdoodle cookie. Ooh. So the scent, like when you're just kind of holding the cup and just like putting it up to your nose breathing and the breathing steam that in. aroma in, it's it's like a, a snickerdoodle just like blasting you in the face. Yeah, Ooh. it's awesome. So they are also our new partners. Oh. And if you order with the code JUDO15, you can get 15% off your order. Just go to tstt.com, put in the code at checkout. That's JUDO15. Because once you go loose, you never go bagged. First one on here, Matthew. Mm. Right out the bat, smells like teen spirit. I mean, come on. How do you listen to this? This might be the most recognized song of the 1990s. Yeah, I would, I would say it's it's a, a very, very strong contender for that title. song that started it all for Nirvana and in many ways ended it all as well. Yeah. It's one of the biggest, most important songs of all time. Only got to number six on the charts. It is very much a generation-defining song. It is a cultural landmark. It is a song that everyone has heard. It was like the lunar landing or the Kennedy assassination in musical terms for an entire generation of people. I can tell you exactly where I was when I heard this song for the first time. (laughs) I was at home, sitting on the floor, watching 120 minutes on MTV when the video premiered. I had not heard the song before that, even though it had been out for a couple weeks. In fact, the song was only popular in pockets around the country where Nirvana had gained popularity with Bleach. It wasn't until that seminal moment, those three and a half minutes of celluloid, that everything changed. (laughs) Seriously, that video was so eye-opening because I had never heard anything like it, and the video was so much different than everything that was being played. The lyrics were unintelligible, but it didn't matter because the music was raw. 
and loud. Coming out of the 80s into nine, 1990, music, at least rock music, was still very focused on the guitar solo. Hair bands, with their popularity waning, were still at the forefront. But this song changed all of that. It was gritty, yet accessible, loud, but with alternating softer parts. It was hard to define, but the public reacted. This sold millions of copies, appeared on every chart, would win a ton of awards. Kerrang! magazine called it the best single of all time. This year, Rolling Stone would name it number five on the list of the best songs of all time. And in 2017, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Kurt Cobain set out to write the ultimate pop song. He said that, according to him. He was trying to emulate the Pixies when he wrote the song, a band he'd long admired. And they do a lot of dynamic shifting, louder to softer. And he wanted to use that as a framework. It's the only song on the record to share songwriting credit between all three members, as they all brought something significant to the table. And this would end up pissing Kurt off. Yeah. He would redo his publishing deal as a result. So he got more of the lion's share of the profits from their songs since he did most of the writing. <laughs> and he unwittingly wrote the ultimate pop song. Yeah. As was the case with Nirvana and later with Dave Grohl's band Foo Fighters, this is not a lyrically focused band. No. The music comes first, and then they try to find words to jam into the song. As much as people think the lyrics for this song are about youth alienation or apathetic Generation X kids, it was really verbal nonsense that syllabically fit into melodies that had already been written. Yeah. For me, it makes it that much more valuable at that time because bands were trying to always say something. Hair bands were trying to write the ultimate power ballads. A lot of alternative bands were taking up the mantle of disaffected youth. Rappers were focused on New Jack themes and a lot of urban topics. Metal was typically dark. And here comes this big, biggest single of all time. And the words mean nothing. Yeah. Just words in an order that sounded good. And I remember sitting down with the tape of Nevermind and listening to this song in five second blocks, writing down what I heard. <laughs> and what I, what, I, what I had made no sense. But those were in fact the correct lyrics. A mulatto, an albino, a mosquito, my libido. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> the song is full of contradictions. And of course, people try to find every hidden, hidden meaning in the, in the words to this song, tear it apart, see if they can read the tea leaves so to speak, and about what would eventually happen to Cobain. But come on, he was writing things down that fit. There's no dark secret within the yeah. lyrics for, foreshadowing his suicide. So yeah, go on. I would say even even the main line smells like teen spirit. So many people have tried to read so much into that. And where it actually came from, according to a, a little snippet on Song Facts, um, Kathleen Hanna, the lead singer of the group Bikini Kill, gave Cobain the idea for the title when she used a Sharpie to write Kurt smells like teen spirit on his bedroom wall after a night out of drinking and spraying, spraying graffiti around the Seattle area. Um, in his pre Courtney love days, Cobain went out with bikini kill lead singer, Toby Vale, but she dumped him. Vale wore teen spirit deodorants and Hannah was implying that Cobain was marked with her scent. Right. But he had no idea what it meant. No. Until weeks after the single yeah. was released. And he somebody... assumed it was some revolutionary statement. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Right? It just smells like deodorant, dude. So I know that you did say that, you know, this was kind of the songs before this always had that driving guitar solo. Yeah. And this this actually has one. It, it's a great guitar solo right in the middle. Uh, uh, and originally it was supposed to be at the end, but Butch Vig had them move it into the middle. Uh, it sounds a little bit like this. Yeah. 
are actually quite a few guitar solos on this record. I think yeah. what I was trying to say is oh. all of his solos follow the melody line of the song. Yeah. They're not like wailing solos. They they're they're they follow the vocal melody line almost to oh, the yeah. note. I would totally agree with that. And on top of that, I think that's actually a how do I put this? It's like a comfort thing, I mm. guess is a good way to put it. You're saying to people, hey, we know what you enjoy in your comfort music in the music you've been listening to for years we're going to still give you that but it's going to be this new sound it's going to be something completely new and different with that comfort of you know oh we know there's going to be a guitar solo in here we know that it's going to follow the same structures of music i think that it's intentionally like like i said butch vig had them put it in the middle i think because they were trying to emulate pop music and the sort of hair band stuff that was starting to die finally and say, look, we can be like this, but it is also a completely new and revolutionary sound. It's very intentional. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, having it called out that Butch Vig specifically said, we're going to move this from the end and put it in the middle. I think it has a lot to say about it. Mm-hmm. The way the structure. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I know you said you saw it on 120 minutes. Yeah. I have a very distinct memory of seeing this on Beavis and Butthead. That makes sense. Uh, and they make fun of it a little bit. Uh, I went and looked that up for this, um, in doing some research for this episode. Uh, don't bother. Uh, <laughs> Why? It's not funny. It's like I, re- I have a distinct memory of laughing a lot and it, thinking it was very funny. Yeah. It's not funny. It do- You don't get to see the whole music video because they cut all of them short. Right. Um, and it just... They don't really have anything to say about it. So. <laughs> All right. Skip Beavis yeah, and Butthead. Don't bother. So when it was really cemented home, just how big this song was and how many people were impacted by it was in the spring of 1992. So this album had been at the top of the charts and was still riding the wave at that point. Heather and I had just met in March of 1992, and we used to go to the bowling alley all the time because neither one of us was old enough to go to the bar. So we would alternate <laughs> between the movie theater and the bowling alley. And on Tuesday night, they did rock and bowl, which is similar to what they call cosmic bowling. Now. Yeah. Uh, back then, they didn't show music videos, though. They just had a DJ. They played music. And we were there one night, and our lane was at the very end of the complex, so you could see every other lane from where you were. And this song came on, and the place just exploded from one end of the alley to the other. <laughs> Heads were bopping up and down. Hands were up in the air. Everyone was singing those very un- unintelligible words. Everyone, not just punk kids, but jocks, black kids, white kids, everyone was reacting to it. And it was like, whoa, this thing is big. Uh, The only other time I witnessed anything even close to that was when they played uh, Enter Sandman by Metallica, which was also breaking right at that same point. And it was surreal. It was very visceral. You knew something important was happening. I I think in the moment, I think we all get kind of captured by whatever we're doing and i don't think you're able to take in but in retrospect just seeing it you knew something big was happening and it you know living that moment you're like oh wow this is this is different so uh in you talking about you know writing down the lyrics for this earlier i was a the the last lyrics in this are the the words a denial repeated over and over and over again yep i always was a hundred percent positive that was avocado I was 100% positive. He just said, avocado, avocado, over and over. Uh, I like that better. Turns out it's a denial. So Mm, I think I would go with avocado. I like it better, personally. I do, too. 
So you remember uh, what I said just a few minutes ago? What? About how... Uh, oh, you got to pee? Yeah, I got to pee. Okay. So uh, my apologies, everybody. We're going to stop right now. Instead of during the normal break period where we would stop and it would be easy for Randy to find it and be able to edit it, I'm going to do it now and I'm going to keep talking into it so it's even more complicated. So thank you, Randy. Uh, future Randy, thank you for editing my bullshit out. Kyle's in bloom. I am. Have you ever been in bloom, listener? Uh, the springtime, the lovely fresh air, your petals exposed to the sun. Whoa. 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 So originally, this music was uh, very much faster, and Kurt Cobain took the original idea and slowed it down a little bit to get this version of the song. It's the fourth and final single from Nevermind. Mm -hmm. Ended up reaching number five on the mainstream rock chart. It was an attempt by Cobain to poke fun at the audiences that had begun attending Nirvana shows after the success of Bleach, the previous record. Which, again, very punk. Right, but because they had got hugely popular after the release of Teen Spirit, this song would actually become that thing that he was mocking. Mm -hmm. uh, now millions of people were singing this song, partly because the chorus is so singable, yeah. and it had become that thing that he allegedly hated. Cobain was such a dichotomy, and I don't think we are ever going to know everything about him, but the general consensus about him is that with all of his railing, against popularity and shunning the spotlight and not wanting to be an icon and looked up to by millions of fans. It's that he very much did want those things. Yeah. He wanted to be in the biggest band in the world. He did want to sell millions of records. He did want to play to huge audiences and mentally, emotionally, he may not have been prepared to deal with that, but he did crave that thing. And I think that's the problem is that he According to Dave Grohl, according to Courtney Love, these are things that he absolutely wanted. Yeah. And it's just when he got it and realized all of the things that have to go along with that, then he turned his back on that type of stuff. You have. A, a, yeah. A, uh, so, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, weirdly, uh, they did record a, a version of this uh, at Smart Studios, um, and that version was actually used for a music video uh, made for release only on VHS, uh, and that VHS is called uh, Sub Pop Video Network Volume 1 from 1991. came out before this album, obviously. Uh, it's a weird little music video. You can see some clips of it online. Um, they then released a second music video that goes with the final recording of this song where the band plays this bland white rock band, uh, like out of the sixties performing on a show like Ed Sullivan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Kurt Cobain explained in a 1992 melody maker interview, quote, we wanted to be like the Beatles. Uh, no, the Dave Clark five, I was wearing glasses. We would never make fun of the Beatles. I love that. I love that video. Right. It's a great video. But to me, that definitely enhances what you were just talking about. We wanted to be like the Beatles. Right. Uh, no, the Dave Clark Five. Both in two incredibly famous bands yeah. that had huge amounts of followers, probably the biggest band in the entire world, and a very big band, the Dave Clark Five, uh, when they were you know fresh and modern, I guess. But if you're saying we wanted to be like those bands, but we hate all of our fans and we don't want any popularity. Right. I mean, what, what the hell, man? I want to be huge, but I don't want people buying my records. Yeah. Uh oh, okay. Right? What, what? <laughs> Here, have a little listen to this if you've never heard it before. Weakness more. Nature is a whole. 
Matthew, you just said that, uh, you know, in case you've been asleep for 30 years, here's yep. what this sounds like. Uh, make you fun of me introducing that club. Uh, it immediately reminded me of, I believe it's a Portlandia skit where this guy wakes up out of a coma. And when he went, when he was knocked out and went into the coma, it was during the grunge era. And so he wakes up and he's like, yuppies, everybody's a yuppie. What the hell's going on with all these yuppies? Where'd the music go, man? <laughs> uh, it's pretty funny. It went somewhere else. Right? Uh, the bass line in this song, man. It just great. absolutely does it for me. It, it, it's great. 2011, Rolling Stone listed this as number 415 on its top 500 songs of all time. Again, this song has people uh, that consider it foreshadowing to a suicide with lines like, he's the one that likes all the pretty songs. And he likes to sing along and he likes to shoot his gun. But it's pretty clear he's mocking the rednecks yeah. or whatever that are showing up at their concerts. Because the next line is, he don't know what it means. Suggesting that they are singing along without realizing what they are singing along to. Not knowing that this is a punk band. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this song is a big fuck you to those people. It's a huge fuck you. To uh, it's, it's a big fuck you to the people that he thought were intolerant of anything that was different. He went through all kinds of shit as a teenager um, in, you know, Aberdeen, Washington, where all the jocks and all the popular people made fun of him because he was different. And this is his big fuck you to them, mm-hmm. which I think is great. <laughs> it's very punk. Matthew, can you come as you are, please? I can't. Well, you're going to get me in a onesie. Oh, that's right. how I am. Well, that's fair enough. Like I mentioned earlier, this was supposed to be the big hit single off the mm-hmm. record. It was the second single would be considered a hit for a band of this kind if the first single hadn't been Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> it, would, it would reach Hell number yeah. 32 on the Billboard 100, reach the top 10 in eight countries, but this isn't without controversy as well. Mm. Uh, this song has a striking similarity to the Killing Joke song, 80s, mm-hmm. and Killing Joke was super pissed about the similarities, and there were rumors of a lawsuit that never materialized. Uh, and I honestly don't think that those bands, those punk bands, are very litigious. No. Considering so many of the songs of that kind are well, two or three chords max. I I believe the 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 other thing that happened too was the the I don't remember if it was the lead singer or somebody from the Killing Joke. They were kind of becoming litigious about this and then Kurt Cobain committed suicide and afterwards they said we didn't feel like it was a very human thing to do to go after a band who just lost their lead singer to suicide and be like, Oh, by the way, you, you stole one of our songs. We want some Mm. money. I'd have to look into that timing. Cause to me, all these punk bands, two or three chords, max, you have mm -hmm. songs that are bound to sound the same because you can only do so much. Uh, and I think they just wanted Nirvana to acknowledge their song. Ah. And according, according to members of Killing Joke, Kurt or the rest of the band never said anything to them about it. They just denied it through their lawyers. And I think that, I think you just want to be like, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, we may have unconsciously borrowed that riff or yeah. whatever. But there are a couple of very telling lines in the song. One of those uh, lines is, uh, come doused in mud, soaked in bleach. Yeah. Previous Nirvana album was called Bleach, and people think it has something to do with that. However, it is actually a play on a Seattle-area anti-heroin campaign that told heroin users to bleach their needles before use in order to prevent the spread of HIV. The actual line from the campaign was, if doused in mud, soak in bleach. Uh, Cobain's heroin use was not widely known then. Even Dave Grohl was surprised to find out how often he was using, and he lived with the guy yeah. during the making of this record. He had absolutely <laughs> no clue this was happening. 
the other line is, and I don't have a gun. Is it more foreshadowing? No. Apparently, this so line was alluding to Kurt's father's gun collection that his mother had thrown into a lake when Kurt was a kid. Uh, his lyrics are just so nondescript and fragmented, it's really hard to piece together what he was trying to say, and that makes this album that much more mysterious and interesting, because you really can speculate a whole bunch trying to penetrate these lyrics. You have uh, you have more. No, let's just roll into the clip. Oh, for okay. The opening to the song and it just it immediately sets itself apart from the first two tracks on this album and it it just sounds so good to me uh one other thing that i had to look up for this so at the end he says the words memoria memoria over and over and over again are you familiar with that term i am uh, it's a latin term used in western classical rhetoric for all aspects involving memory uh it was one of the five canons of classical rhetoric the others being Inventio, which is the discovery of arguments, Desposito, which was a popular song, also the organization of arguments, uh, Elocutio, which is speaking style, and Pronunciato, the discipline of delivering speeches. I am sure I'm pronouncing all of those wrong, I love but that's it. okay. Uh, this, to me, very much feels like the pretentious bullshit that a punk band would know all about uh, and then write a song about. Love it. Uh, also on we're that, smarter than you uh, are right uh on this same note uh as avocado from a couple songs ago uh, i always thought he was saying mammary ah like boobs ah <laughs> yes Ma- boobs mammaries ah, ah. mammaries ah like no it's just smart stuff no. i like to listen i like to quote jello briafra from dead kennedys Ugh. when i get the chance uh one other nice thing uh that i do need to bring up in aberdeen washington which obviously is the birthplace of kurt cobain uh they have commemorated a sign which uh says welcome to aberdeen washington come as you are which i think is very nice they've done a few things for kurt cobain uh, which sweet. we'll get to in a few songs coming up here, but breed matthew this is where the album gets more interesting for me this is a command not a not a question oh because they're now these are now more of the lesser-known songs, yeah. to some degree. Uh, this song was originally titled Emodium, mm-hmm. the anti-diarrhea medication. Yeah. After uh, uh, their friend Tad Doyle, when they were on tour, had to take it all the time to stop from getting diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tad. Uh, but Cobain said this song was about middle America, mm-hmm. marrying at 18, getting pregnant, stuck with a baby, and not wanting it. And yeah. if you look at the lyrics... Besides the usual Cobain nonsense and strange pairings of phrases, it does seem to steer towards the disillusionment of that age. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you have, even if you need, I don't mean to stare, we don't have to breed. This song takes a different turn lyrically, as it kind of does make sense, and it's a little deeper than the others have been to this point. Musically, it has a great guitar solo, it's nice and loud. Yeah. Here's a little clip. Oh. I can't, I can't, I can't. 
guitar in this like randy just pointed out it is such a driving bass line it just it's so good i love it it stands out so much to me for some reason i love the guitar solo and it's mixed really weird so it pans back and forth yeah. in your head it's a little bit disorienting because he swirls it around it's real cool in a set of headphones though. it is this was originally developed before the album while the band was on tour in 1989 and i definitely think it is a like you said, this is kind of where the album, the first three songs are so popular. This is kind of the first one that takes a little bit of a drop off uh, and then it comes back up mm-hmm. uh, unless you've got more. We'll I go do. to that song. Oh, so go I ahead. remember the first time that I listened to this record all the way through. Uh, I was at my friend Chris's house. Yes, that Chris, the host of Audio Judah Does Jazz. Hi, Chris. If you haven't checked that out, go to audiojudah.com forward slash AJDJ and listen to those episodes. Um, we were in his living room. And this is where the album became alive. And I remember just sitting there listening, saying, what are we hearing right now? Because it was so different. Uh, I had to make a copy of the CD onto cassette. And I remember driving home, just blasting this in my car and was just totally blown away. You can't even ex- like explain in the, in the ensuing 30 years <laughs> since then that there's been an album that totally just rocked your world and changed how you looked at music. I've listened to tons of records that I'm like, oh man, I totally love this. This is great. But but to just stop in your tracks and go, what in the fuck am I listening to right now? It that that's what this record did. Uh, yeah, that's all I have for uh, that's, for that. That's amazing to hear too because I you hear that story like I tried very very hard when researching this album not to get too many people's personal stories about it specifically because while I think those are important and I think that they're a story that can be told, it's not what I really wanted to talk about when talking about this album, because I wanted to talk about our personal stories, but not other people's, but so many people, this album changed their lives. It changed their perspective on music. It changed how they felt about, you know, like where music was going Mm-hmm. And so many people that were like, okay, we're now in this boring malaise of you either have to be a metal guy or a pop musician and that's it. And then suddenly grunge exploded with this album and they were like, oh no, there is a third option. Like, it's amazing to me. It's, yeah. it's amazing that it happened. And it's amazing that we weren't, all weren't taking lithium by <laughs> Hey, oh. that's, that's the name of the next track. It is. Everybody assumes with this one that Kurt is talking about lithium the drug here. Which, in case you don't know, it's used to treat a mood spectrum bipolar disorder, disorder uh, formerly called manic depression disorder. Uh, it's actually a very effective anti-depression drug. Uh, it's most likely non-addictive, and it can be produced cheaply, which is probably why it isn't used more often. Uh, it can be toxic if the dosage is not monitored correctly, but uh, it was generally a good treatment for a lot of people. I personally, however, because I'm a fucking nerd, think that he's talking about the metal element here. 
lithium, the metal, is a soft, silvery white alkali metal. Ooh, yeah. Uh, in fact, under normal conditions, it is the lightest solid element that exists. However, it is highly reactive and flammable and has to be stored in a vacuum. Now, think about the building blocks of this song, Matthew. It's very quiet, and then it explodes to loud. It's very quiet. It explodes to loud. Hmm. It's exactly what lithium does. All right. Boom. It explodes to loud. Take a listen. I'm so excited. I can't wait to meet you here. I don't care. I'm so horny. That's okay. My will is good. Yeah, yeah. Could be a song about manic depression, though. Could be, very much. Uh, Cobain said this about the song. Religion is a fine sedative for the masses. It's not necessarily about religion, but it's about depression and turning to religion as a last resort. Most people don't deal with reality. It's just so worthless. People think of life as being so sacred, like it's their only chance, and they have to do something with their life and make an impact on everyone because the threat of dying is just so vital. As far as I'm concerned... It's just a little pit stop for the afterlife. Hmm. It's just a little test to see how you can handle reality. Knowing what he would eventually do, that is a very telling yeah. statement. I mean, that's clear. He's kind of like, well, pff, I don't fucking care. Like, I really don't care. And that's, it, it's kind of just laid bare right there. Yeah. He makes that statement over and over and over again. Yeah. How he feels like life is just a short period of, of the overall existence of a human being. Yeah, just a little like, pit stop. Yeah. Uh, so doing this research, uh, I did a lot of thinking about what it is about this record that made it so special. Hmm. Uh, there's no doubt that it was a perfect storm of the musical landscape changing at the time. But there was also the current political climate. Uh, we were just coming out of the first Gulf War. Uh, and there was a lot of confusion and anger. My generation, and I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are actually generation like generation X like me. I'm always unclear how those lines are so, calculated. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Go ahead, sure. we'll come back to but it. But I was coming out. I was coming out of high school, and there were talks of re-implementing the draft during the lead up to Operation Desert Shield ah. or Desert Storm. I'm not sure which one that's called. And it was scary. And we were looking for a chance to rebel because we were all completely jaded by this. Uh, all the talk was how my generation, that generation was apathetic. And it's just not true. We just didn't feel like working for you. <laughs> my dad's generation and even my brother and sisters, you went to work for a company and you stayed there. You were happy to have a job and provide regardless of how bad it was or how unhappy you were. Uh, and I think we were determined not to go through that. So we were pissed. So there was that. But also, I think what made this album so interesting is that it was completely accessible because of how it sounded. While the songs sounded like punk in their melodies, it was produced and mixed fantastically, unlike yes. most punk records. The unsung hero of this record is producer Butch Vig. The melodies are dark and rough like punk is, but the mix is even and punchy and you hear everything. Everything's clean. And I think coming out of the really overproduced sounds of the 80s, 
people could get on board with well-produced songs that weren't cheesy and like the things they had been forced fed. And I would say it's the most popular song ever that just has the word yeah as the chorus because that's all it is. (laughs) So uh, the way that I always think of it, just in case anybody gives a shit, is... uh, (laughs) We all give a shit, Kyle. Right? Uh, Greatest Generation, 1920 to 1940. Boomers, 40 to 60. Gen X, 60 to 80. Millennials, 80 to 2000. Gen Z, 2000 to 2020. Okay, so Randy's in my generation. Yes. Randy's a Gen Xer. Okay. And there's also, obviously, those are hard dates, I'm saying. There's there's holdover. Because somebody sure. there's a lot of people that I'm sure were born in the late 70s that might consider themselves millennials. There's a lot of people that were born in the, the early 80s that might consider themselves Gen X. There's people born around 2000 that would definitely consider themselves millennials, but technically under my date scheme, they would fall under Gen Z. It's a really weird time yeah. because we're the children of the boomers. Yeah. And the expectation was that we were going to perform as or outperform the boomers. Yeah. And there was a there was a lot of expectation on on us and we were like, you know, you know, fuck you, we're gonna listen to this music. And of course the boomers are like, We didn't listen to that. No, you did. It was just not as advanced as it is now. Yeah. But you did the same things that we did in the context of that time. So we were pissed. <laughs> there was a lot of anger going around. It definitely, we could totally sideline the uh, the whole discussion of this album and talk about uh, my personal beliefs and how capitalism uh, uh, drove the destruction of the uh, the concept of the the success that the boomer generation had was completely stolen by corporations. I like but it. we're not going to go into that oh, okay. <laughs> because uh, uh, I don't think Randy wants to edit a nine hour episode of me ranting like a crazy person. All right. Last thing I want to say about this uh, this song, yeah. One of the most genius moves ever. So first of all, the CD single for this contained a sonogram photo of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's unborn child, Francis Bean. Uh, Kurt said he thought he saw Francis doing the heavy metal devil horns as hand gesture when he watched the sonogram, which is pretty cool. However, possibly the most genius marketing move I have ever seen in my entire life here. The single also included all the lyrics to the songs on Nevermind. So people could finally figure out what Kurt was singing in Smells Like Teen Spirit. So this this single came out about nine months after the initial album. But it was, you know, this is pre-internet. This is pre-being able to figure out what the lyrics actually said. Oh, trust said. me, I know. How many people bought the single to Lithium just to get that lyric book? Lots of people. Hundreds, thousands. Thousands. Millions. Yeah. Genius marketing move. Especially if you slapped a sticker on it that said, all the lyrics to Nevermind which I'm sure they did. Just fantastically genius. I'm sure they did. Uh, Matthew want a cracker? No, Polly want a cracker. Polly want a cracker. This song's even older than some of the others. Yeah. Dating back all the way to summer of 89. Uh, But when it was recorded for Nevermind, Vig had them do the whole song acoustic, which is a tremendous sonic change for the record up until this point. Yes, it is. And lyrically, it is one of the darker points on the record, obviously. It is about a serial killer named George... George Arthur Friend, who kidnapped a 14-year-old girl while she was leaving a rock concert, he suspended her upside down with a pulley system in his mobile home and raped and tortured her with a blowtorch. Lovely. Just sounds like a wonderful human being. She managed to escape when he had her in the truck when he stopped for gas, and she got out and flagged down passerbys. Thankfully, he is serving consecutive 75-year terms in Washington State Prison. Uh, It is a... 
pretty strong song and is a great change of pace. Yeah. Um, it's also the only one on the album with Chad Channing on drums. That's true. Uh, what's interesting is about uh, what I read about this song when I dug a little deeper on the level. That is what the song is about. But I think he just used it as a framework. Uh, an interview with Cobain in 93, he said, it's an anti-rape song. There's mm-hmm. not really much more I could say about it. It's a story about a rapist who captures a sadomasochist, and this woman, Polly, is having sex as a way to de- develop a relationship. He rapes her at first, they have a relationship, they fall in love, and then she eventually kills him and runs away. So, maybe this is Cobain's revisionist version of the actual story? I'm sure he would have preferred that a pedophile like that be killed instead of rotting in prison. Yeah. But it's a it's an interesting uh, skewing Definitely. of the story. Here, have a little uh, listen to it. So another incident that happened uh, after the release of this song, which Kurt Cobain wrote about in the liner notes to Incesticide, he said, quote, Last year, a girl was raped by two wastes of sperm and eggs while they sang the lyrics to our song, Polly. I have a hard time carrying on knowing there are plankton like that in our audience, end quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, very sad incident, obviously, but a uh, good quote. Um, Nirvana, however, like you said, uh, was very anti-rape, um, <laughs> obviously, uh, and they s- played several benefits to help rape victims, including the Rock Against Rape concert in 1993 which raised money for a woman's self-defense organization. Sad that it uh, has to come to that, but I'm, I'm glad that they had a strong stance on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything else. It's, yeah. it's a dark song. Right? Uh, territorial Pissings. Hey, it's a song about my dogs. <laughs> now, I think I could be wrong about this, but I, I believe this is where the second side of the cassette would have started. I think you are correct. I know we are firmly in the CD age at this point, but some of us still had cassettes. If that is accurate, then the second side of the cassette is inherently more punk and less accessible than the first side. Absolutely agree. Uh, there are no hits on the second side. And I would say that unless you are one of the 35 million people who purchased a copy of this record, you don't have a lot of familiarity with these th- with these songs. This song begins with a screaming, out-of-tune version of the refrain of Get Together by the Youngbloods from the 60s, sung by Chris Novoselic. It was originally written by Chet Powers of the Quicksilver Messenger Service. A.K.A. Dino Valenti. Which is why he is credited with a co-write on this song. And it quickly turns from the painfully weird opening to punk assault with rapid fire snare drum fills from Dave Grohl. This song is the most punk song on the record. And even the subject matter is as well. Yeah. Uh, Song was inspired by the observations of Cobain of the mistreatment of the Native Americans and women. He explained the song title as such. In the animal kingdom, the male will often piss in certain areas to claim his territory. And I see macho men reacting towards sex and power in the same way. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, the follow-up to that quote was, uh, I'd like to see these lost souls strung up by their balls with pages of scum manifesto stapled to their bodies. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the scum manifesto? I am here? not. So the Scum Manifesto is a radical feminist manifesto written by Valerie Solanas, originally published in 1967. 
It argues that men have ruined the world and that it is up to women to fix it. Ruined. Ruined. Uh, it is considered by some to be satire and by some to be an actual manifesto for the elimination of men entirely. Uh, either way, it wasn't taken seriously until Solanus attempted to murder murder Andy Warhol in 1968. Cool. For which she went to prison. Oh. <laughs> so, whether you take it seriously or take it as satire, uh, it's a very interesting read, I suppose, is mm -hmm. a good way to put it. I would say so. Uh, I read it several years ago uh, as part of a project that I was working on. Here, have a little listen to this song and uh, see what you think about it. Nirvana appeared on the British TV show Tonight with Jonathan Ross. Ross. They, were, they were told to play lithium. <laughs> they played this instead before smashing their equipment and leaving the stage because rock and roll. It is so worth it to watch that on YouTube, if for no other reason than to see a young Jonathan Ross or Jonathan Roth. 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 Uh, just so uncomfortable. <laughs> you can just see him like, ah, oh, that's. That's American band Nirvana. Nirvana. Uh -huh. Oh, like, it's so funny. They then performed this same song and Smells Like Teen Spirit on Saturday Night Live on January 11th, 1992. And after completing this song, they destroyed their instruments again. That's what you do. Because why the hell not? Rock and roll! Rock and roll! <laughs> Where's the stage? Hello, Cleveland! <laughs> uh, drain you. Whoa. Right here? Yeah. Okay, well, I well, guess. Song was the B-side. Great. For Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's a grunge love song. One of Cobain's favorites. He said that he loved playing it every night, but in true Cobain style, said that if it had, get, if it had gotten as popular as Smells Like Teen Spirit, he probably would have hated it. <laughs> he also said that it's uh, written about a dorky, old-fashioned kind of love, and it sounds a little bit like this. One baby to another says I'm lucky met you. For me, this song has the most complete lyrics on the record. Mm. Uh, pretty well thought out, structured, as a majority of songs on the record are formed around this lyrical couplet. Two quick phrases, you usually move on. Uh, if you start to break this record down a ton, there are a ton of similarities between songs, and, can, and it can get a little derivative. But at the time when we were in the moment, after this album came out, it was mind-blowing, and it didn't matter. Uh, the song was originally called Formula, mm -hmm. written back in 1990, and has this great musical bridge section of noise and <laughs> feedback 
which seems out of place in a really well-crafted pop song, but it fits for Nirvana. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of Sonic Youth uh, and the way they played with noise and such, which is probably why this song was actually a favorite of Neil Young. Uh, Neil Young had taken Sonic Youth out on tour with him and recorded his own album feedback called Ark. Hmm. It's not great, but it might be worth a listen if you're into into that type of kind of discordant noise and such. Yeah. During, uh, that, during that bridge, they actually used a rubber duck and some chains and an aerosol can to make all those noises. <laughs> nice. And you can really, I had no idea it was an aerosol can until reading that. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly the kind yeah. of a noise. Makes sense. And I'm sure like if you listen to the lyrics, you know, it's my duty to completely drain you. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have relationships like that where the other person, even though you love them, just drains all of the energy out of you all the time. Especially if like you're an introvert dating an extrovert and that introvert recharges their batteries by themselves where that extrovert needs the introvert to recharge their batteries for them. <laughs> so that introvert is getting drained all the time. You know, it's, I, I dig this song. It's really, it's really well-written. So uh, originally Kurt Cobain didn't think this was a good fit for Nirvana. Um, he developed it with a side band that he formed surprise, um, which has the unfortunate name, the retards. Uh, huh. <laughs> But uh, it was kind of an impromptu band formed when Cobain and Dave Grohl visited the Melvins drummer Dale Cover, I'm sorry, Dale Crover, and his girlfriend Debbie Shane in San Francisco on their way to Van Nuys, California to record this album. Uh, the four went into a recording space for a couple of days and were playing around, and Kurt announced that he had a song, but it wasn't a Nirvana song because it didn't have a drum part. Uh, Dale quickly started to play a drum part, to which Kurt replied, wow, we have a drum part. And so now that it had a drum part, he took it and turned it into a Nirvana song. So yeah, good tune. Unfortunate name for the side band, but a great tune. It happens. Lounge act, Matthew. Song was written about Cobain's longtime girlfriend and girlfriend when he was writing Nevermind, Bikini Kills, Toby Vale. Uh, And it is a love song written as only Kurt Cobain could write it. Lyrics, I'll go out of my way to make you a deal. We'll make a pact to learn from who. Ever, we want without new rules, and we'll share what's lost and what we grew. That is especially poignant and well written for a punk song. People talk a lot about his nonsensical lyrics, but occasionally he hits a home run. Yeah, the name of the song "Lounge Act" came from a discussion with Novoselic and Cobain about the bass opening of the song that reminded them both of a lounge act type song, and it gives us a chance to talk about Chris Novoselic. Ooh, interesting character because he really doesn't fit into the mold. No, he uh, doesn't. After Nirvana disbanded in 94, he had a few musical projects, but he got really heavily involved in activism, both social and otherwise. Uh, He contemplated a run for lieutenant governor of Washington. Uh, He was involved in Barack Obama's campaign in 2008 before ultimately leaving the DNC, getting involved in more libertarian political movements. He has written multiple books about government and politics, earned his degree in social sciences, and is also a licensed pilot. This is not at all what I expected to see when I started researching the bassist for Nirvana. The flip side of that is I absolutely can see a young punk musician taking that path. Like they either burn out and fade away or move into government. (laughs) Politics and government. What else you got about this? Uh, Here, have a little, uh, have a little sample of it first. Well, 
it definitely like this one, this track and the next track. I'm very surprised they did not get more radio play and more traction. They have a very almost poppy sound. They're very like memorable. Once you listen to them, you could definitely see listening to it over and over and over again. Uh-huh. And it has always surprised me that this did that this didn't get more traction to it. But I guess whatever. Whatever. Stay away, Matthew. Uh song was originally called Pay to Play. Pay to play. And would have been a lot more controversial of a song if people would have actually understood what he was singing. Yeah. First off, it has the line, would rather be dead than cool. Mm-hmm. A line that was poured over after his suicide, yeah, as were a lot of his writings. Was it foreshadowing? I don't think so. Uh, I'm sure he was depressed. He was into drugs, but I don't think he had a death wish. He was, but he absolutely had his demons. Now, it was the line at the end of the song that people interpreted as God is dead, which to me isn't that big of a deal, but that's not the line. <laughs> the line is actually God is gay. God is gay. He wanted it to be God is dead, but the label made him change it. So let me ask you this question, Kyle. Which would be more controversial in 1991? God is dead or God is gay? I got to say God is gay would probably be more controversial at the time. I'd say in 91, God is gay would be more controversial. Absolutely. Which uh, apparently was actually a phrase from Kurt Cobain's past. He actually spray painted it on a friend's car in high school. God is gay. (laughs) Which, you know, as you do. Uh, you know, hey, I'm going to spray paint on your car because that's fun. We're friends. <laughs> this doesn't wash off. Oh. Uh, the lyric stay away is repeated 20 times in this song. Mm. And the lyric I don't enough. know why is repeated 16 times in this song. Excellent song. Right? I kind of love that wind down there, too, at the end. Just the... <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the last line, like you said, God is gay. Just uh, such a perfect like encapsulation of, of, to me, the whole... It's a perfect punk phrase for the time that it happened. For sure. <laughs> it just fits so well. Um, on a plane... On a plane, P-L-A-I-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my favorite song musically on the record. It's a fun song about the frustration of writing a song. Right? I forgot how much I loved this song when it first came out. There's some great lyrical moments. Uh, it's just lost in all the fragmented things that don't make sense. Yeah. Uh, it's very much like writing Mad Libs or something like that. He would take poetry fragments that he had in his journals, find places to mash them. Uh, but within those phrases, he would have complete ideas that he was writing around. So this song, like you said, is ostensibly a song within a song or a song about writing a song. He has all these elements going on where he's talking about the abuse, uh, the abuse of his, uh, that his mother suffered every night when he was a kid, written with couplets that talk about how he can't finish the song. It's like he's battling it out right 
in front of our ears. Yeah. He also talks about all the stuff that songwriters try to do to overcome their problems. Start out with no lyrics. Try to work from there. Get high. Get distracted. Love yourself. Write about a good day you had. Write about the saddest day you've ever had. Write about tragedy. Write about being an outsider. Write about something that is senseless. Write about something or write something to someone special. Those are all classic songwriter tropes uh-huh. that's like, oh, I'll write this song to someone special. Oh, I'll write about a problem that I had. Oh, about, I'll write about my best day. It's a very bizarre little song, but I love it. Here, have, have a listen. It is that time to make it unclear To write off lives don't make sense Love myself better than you Know it's wrong What should I do? One more special message to go That's some fantastic background vocals from Dave Grohl. Yeah. Song's very hummable. That that melody is fantastic. It gets in your head. Mm-hmm, you know. mm-hmm. I love it. Is there something in your way, Matthew? So this is technically not the last song in the album because there is a, quote, hidden track after this. All right, all right. But for me, I never waited through all the silence to get to it. So this is the final track for me. And what a way to go. Because I love this song because of how much different it really is. It's a quiet acoustic song with muted drums and a Kurt Cobain doing his mumbly whispery best. It is about Cobain's experiences with homelessness in the 80s in the Aberdeen, Washington area. Which story you choose to believe is really irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cobain said he was homeless for several months and used to fish and live under a bridge and all those things. Novoselic and even Cobain's sister refute these facts, saying it only lasted for a day or two when he ran away. (laughs) But who really cares? Because he was a storyteller and it made the music that much better. Yeah. Uh, according to an uh, an episode of Classic Albums, oh, which I think you've watched before, yeah. uh, producer B- Butch Vig recalled a frustrated Cobain giving up on the original recording, recording process due to a, the band's inability to realize his vision. He and Vig entered the control room with a 12-string acoustic guitar, and Kurt laid down on his back to demonstrate how it should sound. Vig scrambled to turn all the surrounding electronics and set up microphones in order to capture the moment. The subsequent overdubbing process was quite arduous as there was no click track and Cobain's vocals, sound as they sound, came in at almost a whisper. And that is studio magic. Sometimes things just happen for the right reasons. Yeah, Butch Fig said he almost had to hold his breath the whole time during recording this because obviously they're in the control booth, not in the recording studio. And so he had to be there and he had to be able to you know, move faders around and stuff. But he couldn't make any noise, so he literally stood there like, (gasps) (laughs) have a listen, because this song is unlike anything else on this album. Like you already said, Dave Grohl had to play the drums 
super, super precisely, but also super, super quietly mm-hmm. for this for this track to work right. And he did a wonderful job. They're also joined by Kirk Canning, a friend of the band, playing cello on this track, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Gives it a melancholy sound. Yeah. So supposedly, the bridge that he lived under was Young Street Bridge in Aberdeen, Washington. Uh, the bridge today is covered by graffiti inspired by Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, including for quite a long time, a very large, very well done God is gay uh, in huge rainbow letters. I don't know if that's still there or not. Uh, in April t- 2011, the city of Aberdeen commissioned a 13 foot tall electric guitar statue near the bridge in honor of Kurt Cobain. And in 2015, the Kurt Cobain Memorial Park was also created nearby. Uh, weirdly enough, this song actually went to number two on the Billboard US Rock digital songs sales chart digital. In, in August 2020, Yeah, 29 years after it was released. Uh, it was the first time it ever charted, and this was due to its inclusion in the trailer for The Batman. Which still isn't out yet. No, it still isn't out. But uh, yeah, uh, fascinating that it was able to chart that late on. Yeah. You have something about the I do. The last song. So there is I a don't. hidden track. It's called Endless Nameless. Uh, and on the CD version of this, you would have had to wait 13 minutes and 51 seconds after the end of Something in the Way to hear this track. I'm not waiting that long. Uh, here's a little clip of it. There are some lyrics in part of that track. Um, It's a very rough, almost a metal sounding track. It actually started out as a jam session while they were recording Lithium. Kurt breaks his guitar towards the end of it, uh, which is why the sound suddenly changes, but he keeps going. The reason why so many people ignore this track, first of all, because it is beyond the end of the album, technically. Way beyond. Second of all, because it was accidentally left off the initial pressings of the album. Howie Weinberg, who mastered the album, recalled, quote, In the beginning, it was kind of a verbal thing to put that track at the end. Maybe I didn't write it down when Nirvana or the record company said to do it. So when they pressed the first 20,000 or so CDs, albums, and cassettes, it wasn't on there. Uh, Cobain called Weinberg and demanded that he rectify that mistake. So that, to me, is why I want to include it in this. Because if Kurt Cobain called and demanded that it be included in the album, I think it's worth at least a mention. Fair enough. Now, mind you, that being said, it's not a great track. There's nothing of importance here, in my personal opinion. It's just a little bit of a jam session that they threw on there for fun. True. But So that's it, Matthew. That's Nevermind. So we made it. It's one of the biggest, most important albums in rock and roll history. Yes. So take a, take a look for a second to see where that happened. 1991. Okay. Realize that Nevermind was released closer to the time of the Beatles' first record. Mm-hmm. Then from Nevermind to right now. Wow. Beatles' first record, Please Please Me, was released in 1963. 1963 to 1991 is 28 years. From 1991 to now, 30, 30 years. years. It's crazy to think all the incredible music that was made between 63 and 91 and how the intervening 30 years hasn't been so great no. to the music industry. Was Nirvana the beginning or the end? Ooh. People were in a hurry to recreate the Nevermind effect after this, this lightning in the bottle, the album that would, quote, change everything. And because of that, I think that it fundamentally changed the music industry, not necessarily for the better. And it's just something to think about. Interesting. Closer, closer to the Beatles than to us. Huh. That is nutso. 
That is nuts. So. I think it's something to think about. Maybe we can explore that in a further episode or a judo chop because there's a lot more to say about about what that record, the kind of impact that that record had on the industry in general. Yeah. Huh. Something to think about. Yeah. But we already did the Patreon stuff at the beginning. We do. We did. Uh, we do did. If you want to check that out, go to the audio, go to audio judo and click on the Patreon button. Yeah. Or, or audio or sorry, patreon.com forward slash audio judo. That too. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us how you feel about nevermind, uh, info at audio judo.com is our email, uh, facebook.com forward slash audio judo, uh, at audio judo on Twitter and at audio underscore judo on Instagram. Uh, that's probably the one we follow the least, though. So the others are probably better. Yeah. But uh, we have gotten some uh, uh, shout outs from a few people, uh, and we appreciate those. Yeah. Uh, all the notes, we do try to quickly respond to most of them. But, as quick as we can. Yeah. Uh, coming up, we have episodes on Tori Amos, Queensryche, and a couple other Kyle ones that he hasn't filled in yet. Yeah, I'll get there. Lots more, to, uh, lots more coming up, so please stay with us. Until then, uh, bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye, everybody. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.